This week on the Back Table Podcast. And they said, you're kidding, that's it? If you could have seen the smiles on their faces, and now that they've been dialyzing with four or five months now, and how it looks, they've got great buttonholes, and they're young and otherwise they're healthy, and they walk around and nobody knows. They don't have to explain, what is this in your arm? What are these bumps? What's going on? Why does this vessel stick out? He lives a normal life and nobody knows. These are the people that are driving this movement. It's not me or you or the dialysis nurses and technicians. Yeah, we're a big part of it. But the ones that are driving it are the patients. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck, and I'll be your host today. I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Today, we have an exciting episode lined up. Our guest today is Nagai Mala. Uh, Nagai, would you take a moment to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your practice? Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Um, my name is Nagai Mala. I'm an interventional nephrologist. I practice in the Dallas area up in North Dallas in Plano. I'm one of the physicians at Dallas Nephrology Associates, and I'm one of their interventional nephrologists. We have five interventionalists in the practice, and I've, I'm the one that's that picked up the endo-AVF part of the practice here. Sure, I'm using great. both both devices, the Wavelink and the Ellipsis device, as far as part of my practice. So I'm really excited to be here to talk about it, talk about my experiences, and whatever questions you have. Excellent. Just for, for those of us or for listeners who, who may not know, we talk a little bit about like the training, like what it takes to get to where like you like the training um, process for interventional nephrology and where you at, like how long have you been out and and how's your practice shaped up so far? So I've the training for me was in St. Louis University and intervent, the interventional program was part of our core curriculum. It was two years of nephrology fellowship and within that two years, it was part of my interventional training. So then I came out into the Dallas practice and when I joined Dallas Nephrology, I was doing a little general nephrology and a little interventional. And then over the years, I've tweaked it and become solely uh, intervention. So my Monday through Fridays are purely at our access centers and all I'm doing are dialysis patients and dialysis cases. Wow. There are a few programs now that will offer interventional nephrology as a sub kind of specialty after a general nephrology fellowship. I'm not sure where all they are, but I've heard that there are a few out there now. Okay. Fantastic. All right. So jumping into the topic, can you kind of just provide our listeners like the the broad view of dialysis and need for official accretion when, and just, just give us like a, a broad scope so we can frame like what we're going to jump into in, in a little bit. So the thing about vascular access or dialysis access in, in particular, these patients are hooked up to the machine and the machine is running at about, on average, 400 mLs per minute. And so you've got to have a large caliber access and something that'll support pulling the blood at 400, running it through and returning it all back. And that's where just a plain old kind of access doesn't work. And this is, I explained to my patients, put an IV in, it's not going to run fast enough. Uh, and so that's really where the concept of vascular access came in. If I remember correctly, in the early days, they were doing ephemeral artery puncture and ephemeral vein puncture, and that's how they were, and they were using the arterial blood pressure to actually pump through the entire circuit. Uh, and over time, we're now, what, 50, 60 years out, 
now from the original Semino fistula, where it was the arteriovenous fistula that allowed us to use venous access for both needles uh, instead of an arterial access and a venous access. And so that's been the standard for all these years up until this endo-AVF. Your, your catheter, your scribner shunts have been there along the way. But really the first kind of innovation has been this endo-AVF in terms of at least in, how to create the anastomosis to in, in a simpler way. And maybe for some of the uninitiated, we have a lot of trainees who are our listeners. Can you talk about what we mean or what people mean whenever uh, people say fistula first and, and why fistula creation is so important for the dialysis population? Like why not like just put catheters in everybody? You know what I mean? So it, it's all about outcomes in terms of infection rates and quality. The quality of dialysis with a catheter is always lower, right? And the only reason catheters are still around is because of immediate use. Even an immediate use graft still takes two or three days to let the soft tissue swelling to calm down before you can access it. So the graft is immediate use, but the tissue may not allow immediate use. And a lot of times that's okay, but the infection rates for catheter are higher. The outcomes with catheters are at the dialysis level and those patients are clearly lower. So that's why we've made a big push to avoid catheters. And the outcomes for fistulas are better than grafts in terms of lifespan and infection. And so that's why th this initiative came out with fistula first to really try to get a fistula in someone who's a candidate because that's where the better outcomes were. Now the newest guidelines have gone away from a fistula first on everybody to more of a right access for the right patient at the right time, recognizing that a 90 year old patient who starts on dialysis may not, whose lifespan is a year and a half or two years, may not need a fistula or go through the hassle of getting a fistula in and struggling to get it mature, that maybe a graft is better for a patient or maybe even a catheter is better for a patient. So now the algorithm is starting to change. And, and the question of where does endo-AVF come into this algorithm is also unclear at this time. So it's, but the idea behind the fistula first initiative was really based off the fact that fistulas, a mature fistula is better than a mature graft is better than a catheter. In broad strokes, and I get that, right. like the, the pendulum has swung from fistula first, fistula to now appropriate access for appropriate patient. With that being said, I think it's now as good a time as any to jump into the actual topic, which is the endo-AV fistula. Can you talk about first, who is a candidate for this procedure and what does, well, actually just start with who is a candidate and what does the pre-procedural evaluation look like to tease apart who and who is not a candidate for the endo-ABS. So the, everything is done with ultrasound screening for me in, in my center. And so the first question is to figure out, are they an upper arm fistula candidate or not? So your endo-AVFs are an upper arm fistula, either utilizing the cephalic vein or the basilic vein. So there's no forearm endo-AVF option. So the first question is, are they an upper arm fistula candidate? And then if they are, then it's a matter of additional screening of the perforating vein to figure out, are they an endo candidate? So a lot of patients are not an endo candidate, but could be a surgical brachiocephalic or a brachiobasilic fistula, for example. And it really boils down to the anatomy of the perforating vein, which is typically in the antecubital fossa and really identifying where does that perforating vein go. And it, the perforating vein really just communicates the deep veins and the surface veins. Mm -hmm. And so if you, you look at your surface veins, meaning the cephalic and the basilic as your fistula outflow for cannulation for dialysis, if that perforating vein will communicate between one of those, 
or both of those. Everybody's got different anatomy down to the radial veins and or ulnar veins, then that gives you an endo-ABF option. Okay. And as far as your evaluation to look at these patients, it's all with in-office ultrasound and you, I guess you have a, you clearly have a command over the anatomy, but was there some training and some, the learning curve to understand what you were looking for and how to look for basically sizes of vessels, the perforating vein and things like this? Correct. There is. And, and both devices, Avenue and BD are actually very good about getting you and your sonographer trained in terms of what to see. And so a lot of it was getting the sonographers educated. And my experience came with, I was one of the sites with the FDA pivotal trial for ellipsis. And I had the experience several years ago. And so I learned it then and I've maintained it. So I utilized them in addition to having my sonographer uh, trained. Because if you talk to a regular sonographer and say, hey, where does this perforating vein go? A lot of them don't. It's not something that's routine uh, anatomy that they look for. So it's just a matter of getting somebody on board. And it's not a lot of effort and, it, and, and it's not that hard to do. It's just a new kind of place for them to look and new details for them to look at. Okay. As far as we talked a little bit about, is there, oh, uh, one of the things that I wanted to touch on, it seems like the, whether or not you have a perforating vein and maybe the position or connection of that perforating vein is very important. Was there anything else regarding like vessel diameter or arterial inflow that you look for on the pre-procedural ultrasound? So the general rule of thumb is a cephalic or basilic outflow of two and a half millimeters. To, which is your general criteria for a surgical fistula, although this 2 to 2.5 range is, you know, it may be, but the general consensus has always been, okay, a cephalic or basilic of 2.5. So that's where I start with. In addition to just the basilic, I also look at the median cubital vein because that comes into play for the endo-AVF. So I look at a 2.0 for a median cubital vein or the cubital cephalic. Perforating veins are 2.0. And then the artery dimensions are all to minimum of 2.0. So really it's two and a half at the outflow and 2.0 everywhere else is really the threshold in terms of your vessel criteria. If you're looking at an ellipsis, it's really looking at radial, proximal radial artery, perforating vein, and your outflow. If you're looking at a wavelength, you're looking at ulnar artery in addition. You're looking at your ulnar veins in that proximal territory and your radial veins in that proximal territory as well for your anastomosis. And, and for those who, who don't know or may not have any experience with this, when you say proximal territory, we just clarify. Sure. Or, or so everything is at the proximal forearm. So mm -hmm. we're looking right at the bifurcation of the brachial artery into the radial and the ulnar. And typically right around the range of the recurrent radial artery is where that perforator comes down and communicates just adjacent to the radial artery. And on the ulnar side, we look to keep it in the common ulnar artery before the interosseous takeoff. Okay. In your experience, what are the most common things that in the patients that are referred or, or you're evaluating for an endo-AVF, what are the most common things you see that exclude them from being a candidate for the procedure? So it all boils down to vessel anatomy. Things that I've tended to notice, patients that have a high bifurcation of the brachial artery up in, in the upper arm, sometimes don't have a perforator and sometimes it doesn't communicate very well because it just seems like their outflows are not, that their superficial outflows are not that good. 
uh, and they stay small. Some people have large cephalic basilic drainage. Some people have very large brachial vein drainage naturally, because if you don't need it for dialysis, I don't know that it really matters. It's a matter of which highway am I going to take home? But for dialysis, I need that large cephalic and basilic drainage. And I've, I've noticed that high bifurcations tend to have very big radial veins and very big ulnar veins, and their superficial veins are not that big, or they just don't communicate well into the, to the deep level. It's not that I haven't done any, but it's just, it feels like they are less common of a, of a catch. And then it's just those, those variants where everything drains into the brachial veins and they have no cephalic or basilic outflow. A lot of people don't have perforators, but I'm probably, my capture rate is right around 50%, I would, I think, in terms of my screenings to those that are a candidate for endo-AVF. Okay. And so we talked about who might be excluded from being a candidate. In your mind, who is the patient that comes in that is an ideal candidate for the procedure? Is it completely based on the anatomy that you find on the ultrasound? It is. And it's all based off anatomy and, and, and really then it's just a matter of talking to the patient and say, okay, which way do you want to go? The, in general, the, and, and, and really the dilemma is not so much when it's an endo versus an open option, right? If Mm -hmm. it's a square cut option, I mean, patient and you tell them, look, we can do this endo or we can do it open. Most of them choose the endo option. The dilemma in terms of discussions are if they have a forearm radiocephalic option. And they also have an endo upper arm option. Then what's the right access for them? And I, I don't know that the that there is an answer, a good answer, or a standard answer yet, uh, because our kind of standard algorithms always say start distally, start in the forearm, and then work your way up for surgical fistula. But now this endoanastomosis is at the deep level, and if an endo fistula doesn't take or goes down. It usually goes down at the deep level, near the anastomosis or at the perforating vein. So I've had a couple of patients that failed my endo-AVF that went back later and got a radiocephalic fistula surgically, and they're doing fine. Uh, Okay. And those are the ones that I have discussions with the patients to say, hey, which way do you want to go? Do you want to start with the forearm or do you want to start with the upper arm? And if it takes, the question is, if an endo-AVF takes and lasts them five years, then can you go back and do a radiocephalic fistula when that goes down? It depends on where, again, where it fails. Sure. Um, is, but, the con- is the converse available to the patient in that if they go distal radiocephalic fistula, that fails, can you do endo-AV fistula subsequently? Yes, you can. Okay. Uh, and so that becomes the option. And so typically what my patients have been choosing, I've noticed the trend, again, is almost a bimodal kind of curve towards endo-AVF. The elderly patients, even if they have a radiocephalic option, will choose an endo-AVF just to avoid the surgical open, just to avoid anesthesia, uh, just to avoid all of that. And that this may be the only access that they need. Someone who's 75, when you look at lifespan, if you get them one good access, that may be the only one they need to get their access for the remainder of their time on dialysis. So the elderly patients will preferentially choose an upper arm endo-AVF over a radiocephalic fistula. The young patients who are in their 20s and 30s will do the same, choose an upper arm for the cosmetic reasons more than a lifespan reason. But the patients who are in their middle age that are more in their 40s, 50s, and even early 60s, 
it's 50, 50 split. A lot of them say, I want to preserve all the access choices I can. I say, okay, then start with this amino. Uh, and some of them say, no, let's go ahead and start up here. Okay. That's interesting about the bimodal distribution and, and the reasons for the, like the reason for the elderly, I understood. I wasn't expecting the cosmetic uh, thought process for like younger patients. How about, I, I have, oh, go ahead. Can I, let me come in with an example here. Sure. I have one patient who I put their endo-AVF in before they were on dialysis. And then he got a preemptive transplant and he's done great. So he didn't need dialysis at all. So he came for his six month visit and he said, I completely forgot about this. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I look down, I don't see it. He says, so I forgot it's there. So I scan him. And so at first I got worried because I thought maybe it went down. The scan him looks great. Sizes are great. And he said, no, it's there. It's functioning. He says, okay, so it's there when I need it. I said, exactly. I said, the, and this is my little byline for the endo AVF. It's there when you need it, but it's forgotten when you don't, because he completely forgot it's there because he can't tell. Sure. That's great. Can we, I think now is a good time as any to jump into how do patients end up in your clinic for the pre-procedure evaluation? Basically the, the line of thought is like, uh, what are the referral patterns for this procedure? So I'm unique in this sense because my practice, Dallas Nephrology Associates has 90 plus 95 nephrologists. And so most of my referrals are internal and I didn't have to do a lot of effort into the marketing side of it. Not all of my my partners refer to me because the geography is obviously so big. I'm in North Dallas. And so the patients from the South, it, it's a ways for them to get up to me. So not all of them are able to, some of them patients still will make that drive up there for this, just for the screening. But really I've kept it all internal. I do have some patients that come from other physicians and, and other practices. And I think part of that is driven by the dialysis clinics because the dialysis clinics are also taking care of these patients. So if they get a patient that initiates on dialysis, they say, what's your access plan? Then the dialysis clinics will send them over for the vein mapping as well. They obviously check with the referring physician, but if the referring physician says, yeah, that's fine. I don't have an op preference. I don't have, uh, uh, send it to whoever you want. Then the dialysis clinics will send them over. So a lot of education is also spent at the dialysis clinic level for the referral practice, in addition to your nephrologist that would be referring to you. Okay. Are there any nephrologists in your group or I, I guess, were there any reluctant referrers, like even within your group who, who I imagine you guys are all colleagues, it's a big group. So maybe you don't know everyone on a, a super personal level, but were there any people who were reluctant or had some reservations about sending patients for this procedure? There are, I mean, and there are always all the, there sure. are patients there and there are, and, and it's not, I think it's really mainly, they just want to see how it develops and how it goes. And they want to take, provide the best care for their patients. And they want to make sure endo AVF is a good option not only in terms of the anastomosis, but you got to see it through all the way to cannulation and catheter removal. So a lot of them are waiting to see this whole process and how it goes before they really start sending all their patients over. Okay. All right. So switching gears a little bit and, and back on the pre-procedure. So now, so the patient has been evaluated. They're deemed uh, by you to, to be a candidate. They're, they're set for their procedure date on either... What do you do immediately leading up to the procedure or the day of procedure, like to get the patient ready? And, and what I'm, I'm driving at here is, is do you pre-medicate them with anything, either anticoagulation wise, do they take antibiotics beforehand or do you have a pre-procedure antibiotic and those kind of things that for someone like getting off the ground, what, 
how do you get your patient prepped and ready to go? So my patient prep is really, I just look at their anticoagulant list and I hold it for the day before and the day of the procedure. Plavix, aspirin, Coumadin, Eliquis, those are the main ones. And it's really just the day before and the day of. And then assuming everything went well, then they can resume their anticoagulation that night. So they really only miss a dose. And I don't know that it's really needed. It just makes me feel better. Short terms. Because honestly, what's two doses of Plavix being held is not really going to change much of anything given its half-life. So I, that's the only thing. I don't do preoperative antibiotics. I do a regional arm block on the morning of the procedure myself. And my turnaround time for the patient for door-to-door at our ASC is usually around three to four hours. So they can be in and out of the door in three to four hours usually. That's great. As far as anesthesia needs are your patients, you mentioned the arm block, anything beyond the arm block? Conscious sedation. So I'll give them conscious sedation and and, and I do the arm block. I think the arm block also helps vasodilate, which helps everything along the way. But there are plenty of providers who are doing this all under conscious sedation, both with the ellipsis and the wavelength. So it's not an absolute necessary because I know providers that are doing both without and they're only doing it under conscious. But the arm block makes everything much more comfortable for a patient, makes it, makes it much more comfortable for me. And in general, everybody has done really well with that. Can we take a, a quick uh, detour and talk about the nerve block? I, I would assume you, maybe you didn't know how to do nerve blocks beforehand. Maybe you didn't. Was it, I've, I've heard, I, I haven't done one personally, but I, I just maybe thought would learn a little bit about your process and how difficult was it to learn and what exactly do you do? So the nerve block is pretty straightforward. It's under ultrasound guidance. Uh, it is a supraclavicular nerve block that I do. I use a combination of lidocaine and pivocaine, and that gives me quick enough onset and lasts me long enough to get through the, the case. And especially in the early days when the cases will take a little bit longer. I tried lidocaine only in the beginning and towards the end of some of my longer cases, it was starting to wear off. So I do a combination of lidocaine and pivocaine. It is a total of 20 cc's. And it's all under ultrasound. You identify uh, the subclavian artery and the nerve bundle is very easily visualized right there. It actually looks uh, hypoechoic. It almost looks like vessels. So I'll usually turn on color because sometimes a branch off the subclavian artery will course through it. So you just have to identify. I went and observed somebody doing a nerve block once and then there was a course I went through and then I had some people guide me as well. So the learning curve for that was actually very quick and, and simple. So it is not hard to do. In a freestanding ASC, if, if you're doing it, it's easy to add on. In a hospital base, there's more protocols you may have to go through if you want to do it yourself. Sure. All right. So uh, let's jump into the the meat of the topic, which is like the procedure. Can you talk a little bit about the two systems available for endo-AVF first and then just a, a 10,000 foot view of both of them? Sure. So there are two systems available for endo-AVF right now. The first is the Avenue Ellipsis uh, device. And this is the one that I was part of their initial pivotal trial for. This is all ultrasound guided procedure. And so it took me as a nephrologist a little bit because I was not using ultrasound for anything other than an IJ or femoral vein puncture for a perm cast. And so learning the anatomy was a little bit there, learning to manipulate down. But the idea is a, basically it's a percutaneous transvenous radial artery puncture. So I take my needle into the cubital vein uh, usually on the cephalic side, needle down the perforating vein until you're at the level of the radial artery and then puncture into the radial artery. So all of this is under ultrasound. Wire goes down, 
sheath goes down over the wire, right? And mm-hmm. then the device comes over an 014 wire, and then you bring it all the way into the radial artery, and then you'll back it up. And then you leave the distal tip in the artery, the proximal tip of the device is in the vein, and it just clamps together. And then it ca- it basically uses heat. I, I forget their technical terms on how each device works, but then you activate the device. It runs through a couple of quick little bursts to create the anastomosis. And then that's it? And that's it. Wow. How long does that take? My average procedure time is about 15 minutes. I've gotten down into the 10 minute range and below 10 minute on some very large vessels that are these young patients that have great vessels. It's quick and easy to get in and out. And then that's it. Take the sheath out, hold pressure. I do heparinize them with 2,500 units of heparin once I'm, once my sheath is placed, um, mm-hmm. sheath out, hold pressure. That's it. Standard okay. 30 minute reco- standard 30 re- minute recovery. Okay. All right. Then let's talk about the other device. So the Wavelink device is dual access. So you need venous access and you need arterial access. So I typically will start with venous access first. And so the Wavelink can be a little more tricky because you have two options. You've got a radial side you could use, or you could use the other side. So it's always a matter of deciding which way you want to go. Your access points can be the brachial veins or the radial or ulnar veins. So depending on the size, if I think the wrist veins are big enough, then I'll come in from the, the wrist vein, up, wire in, sheath in, and then the first step, and this is all under fluoro, but I do mm-hmm. use a lot of ultrasound to guide my wire positioning because sometimes these brachial veins are even more than one, and it's a matter of identifying which one, which one communicates to the anastomosis site you want. So first step is doing a fluoroscopic run from the venous network for me and identifying the perforator, make sure I've got good superficial outflow. And that's my confirmatory run and that I've got a reasonable target zone in terms of size and length. Uh, Then I will get arterial access and the only FDA indicated arterial access currently is brachial artery. So you'll come from the top down, um, just do a quick arterial run and then get the wires down. Once the wires are in place, then it's just the catheters coming in over the wire. And again, this is an 014 wire system. I tend to like using an 018 wire if I'm coming down the brachial vein. I think manipulating through the valves, it seems to do a little bit easier. So I'll use an 018 wire for that. But if I'm coming up from the wrist and not having to fight the valves, then it's just an 014 wire. Once your catheters are in place, then it's just a matter of getting them aligned properly in terms of, and sometimes that's actually the tricky part is getting them aligned quickly and and properly. So the way the Wavelink device is, is the venous catheter component is the active one. And basically it's hooked up to a Bovi pen and a Bovi machine. So think of this as an internal Bovi and it burns from the vein into the artery. And so there's an active electrode on the Wavelink catheter. The arterial catheter is just a backstop. So you don't burn through and through. And it's just a capture device. So really it's just a ma- the magnetic alignment is just to make sure everything's positioned appropriately. Your venous catheter is your active electrode and that's what burns through and creates your double slit anastomosis. So once the, the catheters are aligned, you're good with positioning. Then you create the anastomosis, you take it out. The venous puncture site, you just usually typically hold. And then the arterial site is also being held the routine protocol there. 20 minutes of pressure for the brachial artery. 
And, and recovery is about the same, actually, about 30, 40 minutes after that. This also sounds fairly straightforward. And how long does this one take? Roughly, I'm sure everyone. So the, this one, so if, if I'm doing a wrist approach, I can get through quicker as far as the veins, because it's just quick image and the wire goes up. I can get it done in about, my fastest was about 13 minutes, but average time probably is about 20 to 30 minutes. If I'm doing a brachial vein approach and I have to manipulate the valves and everything and get down, then sometimes it takes a little bit longer, but this is probably a 20, 30 minute case on average. Once you're comfortable, the initial cases were very long, but a lot of it was manipulating territory I was not familiar with. But yes, this is the same skill set as interventionists we're always using. Fluoro, wire, catheter, compi, get where I need to. The last step that I forgot to mention about the wavelength is I usually drop a coil. Since I've got access already in the brachial vein, just drop a coil on the way out before you pull the sheath. Okay. If you could, and, and maybe this is hard to gauge, but I think like a lot of interventionists, we all have you all, what you're describing is not like new skill sets that you have to learn. It's a lot of ultrasound, some fluoro with the wavelength. In terms of level of, of difficulty, how many cases did it take for you to get comfortable with the procedure? And how would you gauge the level of difficulty compared to what you do on a just your standard uh, dialysis maintenance and treatment? So with the ellipsis having no ultrasound experience, probably five to 10 cases. I think it's real, and for both, I think five to 10 to really understand, okay, this is what's happening. This is what I need to do for the wavelink as well. The challenges for the wavelink were a little more just because there's so many variations in terms of coming down to the radial side or coming to the ulnar side. Um, and whether I'm going to do wrist access or whether I'm going to do brachial vein access, but now I've got it down. So my preference is always wrist access in terms of the veins. And I always really look for that. And sometimes I'll get probably a third of the way up the forearm away from the wrist. If I think the vessels are good enough for the, for venous access. And that still gives me enough length with the sheath in there to get my device and the catheter in there to activate, but it's really trying to figure out, okay, what's the streamline approach to really get in there and get going. And just, there were more variabilities in the wavelength, but once you figure those out, everything goes really quick and smooth. So we've talked about. Uh, the pre-procedure, the procedure, and so it, we've touched on it a little bit, but can you talk a little bit um, about post-procedural care and how long you keep patients? Do they get any medications, any coagulations? They both get heparinized, both devices. I use the 2,500 units of heparin once I have arterial access. The ellipsis I've made out of mention was a six French slender sheath. The wavelength devices are five French sheaths uh, that I use. So sizing is about the same. And then that, that's it. I don't send them home on anything additional. I don't, if they're not on any coagulants or plavix, I don't add it to my regimen for them. And then I see them back in two weeks. The recovery time is about 30, 40 minutes. Their arm, I send them home with a sling and I just tell them, look, you're going to be back to normal tomorrow. So part of my post-op in discharge instructions are really just light activity for the first week. I keep them under about five pounds or so. Most of them do really well with that. I start exercising a couple of days after with the squeeze ball. And then really, I think it's a matter of getting the weights and upper arm curls to really develop the upper arm vessels. And so that I instruct them to start after a week. And I usually start with somewhere in two to five pounds, but I tell them if they want to go higher, I have no problems with that. I see everybody back at two weeks and that's when I do the first post-op sono. In discharge, I will do a sonogram also, and I'll just get a baseline brachial artery flow for that particular fistula. 
And do you do that immediately after the procedure is done uh, to establish the baseline? Correct. So in recovery, okay. I'll, I'll, I, I do that. I will do one intraoperatively just to make sure I'm happy with it. But then I've noticed that the sheath being in there tends to slow things down a little bit, particularly on the ellipsis, because that sheath is right in that perforator sometimes. When I pull back that I always do one in recovery and that's what I really use as my baseline. Okay. One concept I wanted to go back and drill down on, because some people may not be familiar with fistula creation in general, but can you talk a little bit more why the yeah, the squeeze ball or the exercising with weights is an important part of the post-procedural, I guess you can call it post-procedural care, the post-procedural instructions? It, it just helps with vessel dilation and, and maturation. So when we make a fistula, what we want that vein to do is increase in size. And the exercises in theory, now there's debate over whether they really work or not. But if you put a sauna on an arm and that's not, that doesn't have a tourniquet and ask them to pump their fist a little bit and look at the deep veins in the forearm, but on several patients, you'll see that it actually increases in size transiently while they're pumping. And that's the idea behind this in terms of how do we help mature these vessels to grow appropriately and not, although not everybody buys on board with it, the squeeze ball helps particularly in the forearm. I think upper arm weights and curling helps for upper arm. And then there's, there's a pneumatic tourniquet device that also may help as well. That's being looked into. In my opinion, it doesn't hurt. So right. whether it helps or not, I, I just ask them to do it. But really I, I, the squeeze ball, I start for about the first month and then I really tell them to focus on upper arm weights and the heavier they want to go on, the f- I'm fine with that but really it's to help enhance vessel dilation. Okay. Talking a little bit about complications, can you talk about in your practice, what are the most common, either minor or major complications that you've seen? And then subsequently, what is the, whether or not you've seen it or not, what's like the feared complication that everyone is worried about? Minor complications, you'll see hematomas on both devices and it's nothing to worry about. And sometimes I'll see the hematoma on the follow visit at the surface level, but most of the time, for the example, the ellipsis, under ultrasound, you can see a quick little extravasation uh, right at the time of creation or right after, uh, usually self-resolves. On the wavelength device as well, you can see uh, a hematoma form sometimes right after. And usually if for that, since it's under fluoro, I'll just do a couple of subsequent runs and I'll see that extravasation. It almost looks like an extravasation and that'll resolve. Okay. The concern on both devices is obviously an uncontrolled arterial bleed and how you would manage that. Because if you, you're basically creating a, a hole into the artery one way or the other, it's just a matter of, is there outflow into a vein to capture that? If there's not, it's just going to go into the tissue. And that's the worst kind of consequence to, to think about in terms of, okay, if there's an arterial bleed, how am I going to manage it? What's my line of course? If you've got arterial access already because of the wavelength device, it's easy to do. You can throw a balloon down there and tamponade it off if you need to. If you're doing an ellipsis, then I always have the radial artery at the wrist prepped just in case I need to get quick arterial access and just put a sheath in the radial artery at the wrist and take a three millimeter balloon up and just tamponade it from that standpoint. So we touched on it briefly, but you said, I think I remember clinic visit after the procedure, two weeks. Correct. So the first follow-up visit is two weeks. uh, And it's really just to make sure my flows are 
where I want. So everyone has uh, their own number in terms of what their brachial artery flows want. So the, the baseline reading is always on the brachial artery. So when I bring them back for ultrasound, really I'm measuring the brachial artery flow first. And the idea is inflow equals outflow. So whatever number I get in my brachial artery, I should see that along the venous outflow tracks. And because an endo-AVF is a side-to-side -side anastomosis, it gives me multiple venous outflow tracks. The majority of it that I want is in the superficial vein, so the cephalic and or the basilic vein. But because it's a deep anastomosis, I will also get flow into the brachial veins. And so what I measure is brachial artery flow. And let's assume I get 500, that's the target. I'm going to measure cephalic vein flow, basilic vein flow, and brachial vein flow. All of those should equal pretty close to plus or minus 100, my brachial artery flow. Got it. And it, yes, no, makes perfect sense. And so when, so you mentioned the minimum of what you're looking for in, in the brachial artery, what is the minimum that you're looking for in your uh, primary venous drainage? So usually 400. If I'm going to run them at 400, then I want it to be 400. But I've noticed that if the brachial artery flow is 500 and it's all primarily superficial, then they have been okay. So the challenge becomes in your venous drainage for your dialysis is whether it's a single outflow or a double outflow. Because some perforating veins will communicate only to the cephalic or only to the basilic. And so then you have to plan accordingly in terms of cannulation, but also maturation for those tends to be a little bit faster and requires a little less flow. The perforators that communicate to both the cubital, median cubital vein for basilic outflow and the cephalic outflow tend to take a little bit longer. And I try to keep those flows a little bit higher at 700. And I've noticed that the, those vessels take a little bit longer to mature. They actually may take a little bit more than three months versus a single outflow. Usually I can get them up and running inside six weeks to 10 weeks. Okay. And what is what do you do in the situation, or I guess two questions. One, how long do you wait for maturation in, in somebody who is not progressing as, as well as you would expect? And is there anything you can do about it to either redirect flow or improve flow to your you know primary venous drainage? So the two-week flow check is really just to make sure everything's patent, everything's settled down. On occasion, I will angioplasty at the two-week visit, but most of the time I've not had to do that. That's very rarely the exception where they come in and their brachial artery flow may be 200, 250, and I say this just really isn't going to cut it in terms of development. But usually I look at the six-week sizing, and if the flows are still below 500 at, at the six-week margin, then I say, okay, let's go in and do an angioplasty for single vessels. If the flows are below 700, then I say, okay, let's go do an angioplasty and, and, and take a look. So for the ellipsis, and these are on dialysis patients, uh, if they're not on dialysis and on CKD, then I usually will, will say, let's just, if we don't need it right now, why go in there and try to rush it? And I give it another four weeks and I let them come back. I basically see them once a month after that initial two-week visit. So for an ellipsis, it is a radial artery approach at the wrist, and all of mine are distal radial access in the snuff box for my maturation procedures. For Actually, for both devices, I do distal radial artery access. For the ellipsis device, it's usually just a matter of doing an anastomosis, an angioplasty at the anastomosis and perforating vein, and I will come in with a six-millimeter balloon uh, at that point. 
For the wavelength device, it's a lot of times the radial vein in between the anastomosis and the perforating takeoff that needs to get angioplastied. So I'll go in there same with a five or six. I usually start with a five and then I'll follow it with a six millimeter balloon and open up that superficial outflow. If it, while I'm in there, if I feel like the deep, the brachial veins are very competitive, I can usually get a wire into the brachial vein and drop a coil. If not, I will just do a brachial vein stick and drop a coil that way. Okay. Uh, for the wavelength on the ulnar side, same. I do wrist ulnar artery access to make sure that I can get in. And then I'll, that it, both devices, if they develop a stenosis, is almost a juxtaanastomotic stenosis that we're typically seeing with a surgical fistula. It's usually the ulnar vein right above the anastomosis on the wavelength or the radial vein just above the anastomosis. And then on the ellipsis, it's that perforating vein because that happens to be right above the anastomosis. Those are the main places where I do the angioplasty. Gotcha. Gotcha. That was going to be my next question is like, where, where are the common places that you actually get the stenosis? And, and, and is it, I guess it's not a, in your experience, has it been near above 90%? That's where you get the juxta arterial segment. You're going to find the narrowing. That's where, that's where it usually finds yeah. it, it is right there. That juxta or anastomotic segment. Okay. And at what point or on average, when will the fistula be ready to use? And then also, when do you clear it for you? Say you have a patient who's on dialysis and as soon as it's ready, then it's as soon as you clear, it's ready to go. And how yeah. fast do they typically develop it? Oh, yep. Go ahead. Take it from there. Most of my accesses I target, for, for, especially for the dialysis patients in that six to 10 week uh, window. If it's a single outflow, Six weeks is usually good enough. I've had a, and, and the cephalics will, are the simplest and the quickest. I don't know why, but they mature very quickly. So if I've got an endocephalic, they are usually ready to go inside four to six weeks, but I only see them at the six week mark and they come back, they're ready to go. The endobasilics are similar. Sometimes that median cubital vein takes a little bit longer to dilate up. And so I usually wait for that. My threshold is five millimeters in diameter for cannulation. And so it's a matter of getting a flow above 500 and a di vessel's diameter of five millimeters to cannulate. My dual outflows tend to take a little bit longer. And so those perforators that are feely feeding both the cephalic and the median cubital to the basilic are the ones that I'm probably waiting 10 weeks, 12 weeks before they're ready to cannulate. Okay. One question with the dual outflows. Can, are both outflows available for access or yes. does it depend? Okay. And so that's typically my approach is cannulating one into each vessel. Okay. Single sticks into both vessels. This is a question we talked to, or one of the topics that we talked a little bit offline about for, for some people who, who don't know anything about this procedure, can you talk about the difference between what a, a standard surgically create, created fistula looks like versus an endo ABF? So if you look at an upper arm fistula, the surgical fistula is usually anastomosed to the brachial artery above the cubital fossa. And so you've got a cephalic outflow and it's an end to side anastomosis. And so either you will have a cephalic outflow or you will have a basilic outflow. And the basilic vein gets transposed and elevated as well, because as it travels up the arm, it tends to dive in underneath the biceps muscle. And, and just the way it, it courses, it's hard for the patient to sit there on dialysis with the needles on the inside of the arm. 
So the surgeon will elevate it and transpose it, bringing it more to the front so the dialysis nurses can access it. Because the endoanastomosis is actually in the proximal forearm, you get a little bit more real estate in terms of cannulation zone. So your, your cephalic outflow, you have the cubital cephalic vein in addition. Your basilic outflow or your dual outflows, you also get the median cubital vein. And so for dialysis, I actually utilize the median cubital vein for my cannulation site. So if I've got an endobasilic, meaning that there's no cephalic outflow, mm -hmm. I will plan on cannulating across the median cubital vein. And I have been able to get almost most of my patients cannulated without a basilic elevation or transposition. One of the, I think, really nice advantages of an endo option is if that patient only has a basilic vein, then it doesn't require, it doesn't absolutely require an elevation and transposition because that's actually a pretty big surgery sometimes, especially on these elderly patients. There is an option though, in terms of if you did need a basilic vein transposition to collaborate with maybe uh, vascular surgeons on this procedure in which you could still do the endo AV fistula and then they could participate in the transposition portion of the uh, absolutely. Yep. absolutely. And I've done that. And the, the patients that have required an, an elevation, I reached out to my surgeon and said, look, I've got enough. The, the fistula is great. The vessel sizes are great. The flows are great. I just don't have enough room for two needles. I could get one needle in if I needed to, but that second one, it's just not going to take because that median cubital vein just dives down really steep as it crosses over. And so I've had one of my surgeons elevate that. Another patient actually came to me because the surgeon saw the patient and said, we're going to do a two-stage basilic transposition. And sometimes if these veins are, if the basilic vein is of a marginal size, the surgeon may opt to do it as a two-stage procedure. One, just create the anastomosis, wait for it to develop. And then as it, after it's matured, then do the basilic ele elevation. So the patient was a little apprehensive about two surgeries, went back and told the nephrologist, Hey, he says I'm good to go, but he wants to do it in two stages. And this was a non-dialysis patient. The uh -huh. nephrologist who was my partner says, maybe we could do stage one endovascular, send them to me. I said, yeah, you're right. We can. So I did stage one, created the anastomosis. Once it was matured and good to go, then the surgeon did the full transposition in the end. So there is a lot of interspecialty correlation that I think is a great option for these patients, especially the ones that are apprehensive about two surgeries, even though it it, it may not necessarily be a big surgery to do stage one. Yeah, a stage one endobasilic anastomosis followed by a surgical elevation, I think is a great option for some of these patients. Going back to now the, the end user of these fistulas, and, and actually, of course, it's all for the patient, but we talked about one of the, the roadblocks um, or potential roadblocks for the procedure is dialysis uh, unit nursing staff education on endovascularly created AV fistulas. Can you talk a little bit about that topic and, and overcoming some of what those hurdles are and, and then how you overcome some of those? So the challenge is because the anastomosis is a proximal forearm anastomosis, most of the flow comes across the cubital fossa into the superficial outflow. The dialysis clinics are used to the anastomosis just above the elbow. And so their cannulation sites are a couple of inches above the anastomosis, which for a surgical fistula is fine, but standard cannulation sites on an endo fistula is really too far away. And the flows really 
I don't think it's not that they go away. It's just not strong enough there to really allow cannulation in the mid upper arm. So most of my cannulation has been cubital fossa ish cannulations much lower than they're used to. Mm -hmm. So that's one hurdle is to say, okay, we're going to stick you somewhere new. The second thing is the vessels across the cubital fossa are much more superficial than where they normally cannulate than higher up into the arm. So the entry angle is not that steep. And so they are used to this 45 degree entry and to get down into the vessel. And if you do that in the cubital fossa, you're, you're typically going to go through and through. And so it's really a matter of re getting them rethink this approach, almost like a phlebotomist and to go very shallow with the entry and along the cubital fossa. And that's really where the mindset changes to say, okay, an endoanastomosis, I have to approach a little bit differently than a surgical anastomosis. Both devices have been giving me very good support in terms of getting an educator and a trainer out to the dialysis clinics. Once I clear the patient, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to draw a roadmap on their patient's arm and basically where the cannulation zones are. And then I stick a tegaderm on it and I say, okay, go to dialysis, let them know this is where we're going to stick. Then I call the company and then they send an educator out to that patient's dialysis shift. And both companies have been very supportive of me in doing this. And that educator has a picture of that arm uh, because I'll take a picture of the arm after I've marked it. I let the patient take a picture of the marking so that they have their own permanent record. And they go and educate the staff on that patient's arm and the tips and, tr and, and kind of tricks on cannulation site. And this includes both staying in the cubital fossa and the entry angle. And that has been very successful in, in terms of getting these patients up. I've noticed it takes about probably four or five patients at each clinic before the, they're completely confident and comfortable where I can just draw on the arm and send the patient to the clinic and then they can say, yeah, okay, we got it. But the initial patients are always educated and I've done a lot of them myself where I will go out and say, this is where we are, this is where we go and I guide them through the cannulation. Okay, that's great. And has there... Is there any, it, it, I kind of know the answer to this, but there must be some inertia in, in some of these places that have been doing something for a long time, a certain way, and then changing them or getting their off their routine and their standards of practice. Like some dialysis units, they have algorithms and kind of protocols in place to help everyone be, be safe. And they have like standard operating procedure. Has it, have there been some difficulty in breaking down some of those walls and, and re-education um, of these units? There has, and there's been a lot of movement to re-educate these clinics and to say that, look, an endo-AVF is a little bit different. It's not your standard fistula cannulation techniques that you're used to, protocols that you're used to. I actually, because it's so superficial, there is a shorter needle. The average needle for dialysis clinics is a one-inch needle in terms of length, mm -hmm. um, but there is a shorter three-fifths inch needle that I typically start my endo-AVF cannulations with. So I'll get the clinic to order that ahead of time, uh, saying, all right, this patient's maturing. Can you order your clinic, th these needles? So when we need them, you're ready to go. That's made cannulation problems a little bit easier is having the shorter needles. And then it's just the mindset to say, all right, look, this is something not just new for everybody, but this is something that's better for the patients in terms of how it was done, maybe even outcomes compared to a surgical fistula. Because if you think about not only is this a multi outflow, but this is a lower 
flow fistula. So maybe some of these long-term issues that we manage in terms of stenosis and cephalic art stenosis, who knows, maybe an endocephalic fistula will never develop that cephalic art stenosis because that flow is never high enough and turbulent enough to have an issue down the line. So it's, it's not just a cosmetic thing that I think about for the patients. I actually think there may be a physiological flow benefit that only time will tell. I can't say that for confidence, but to explain to them that, look, this is not something that is a challenge because it, I want it to be a challenge or just because it's cool. I think this is actually better for the patient. And by doing this and learning this, we're actually taking better care of the patients. And so that is usually what gets paid people on board. You're pioneering or tracking through new ground, but hopefully people who are early adopters of this procedure will do some of the heavy lifting. And then as it becomes more mainline, then some of these barriers have been broken down and won't be so difficult. And not to say that it's super difficult, but I realize that whenever you roll out something new, that there's some inertia that you have to overcome both in you know terms of your own staff and then the end users, uh, which are the dialysis units. The biggest rollers and, the, and movers of this inertia are the patients. And I, I look at this, I mean, if you look back at the history of laparoscopic cholecystectomy, right? There was a lot of resistance from some surgeons along the way. And I, I grew up in a small town in Texas, so I still know some of the surgeons back there. And I asked one of them, I said, hey, do you remember when the lap coli started? He says, oh yeah, I remember. I said, and? And he said, yeah, I, I, I assisted on the very first lap coli in town. I said, how'd it go? He said, it took us five and a half hours. <laughs> Two surgeons, five and a half hours. And I said, and what happened in that first interim window? And he said, I watched complications. I watched lap coli's get converted to open. He said, I watched patients, I didn't end up in the ICU. I saw patients die. He says, and I never did it. I said, but you're a big laparoscopic surgeon now. I said, what changed? How did that change? He said, I went six months and I would not offer a lap coli. He says, patients would come to me in the office. And this was back in 1990 before Twitter and things went viral and everything like that. He said, patients would come see me in the office. And when I told them I would only do an open, they left me. Hmm. He said, so I knew in order to stay relevant, I had to adopt this technology. And this is how I see the endo-AVF movement. It's not going to be driven by the doctors. It's going to be driven by the patients. And it's the patients that I see on follow-up that are loving it. One of my patients is, and his wife are both in the healthcare field. And she is an ER nurse and she cannulates him at home and he's doing home dialysis now. But I remember their faces when I told them that, yeah, your fistula is mature and ready and done because they both know what a, sure. in their head, what a fistula is supposed to look like. And they said, you're kidding. That's it. If you could have seen the smiles on their faces and now that they've been dialyzing with four or five months now and how it looks, they've got great buttonholes and they're young and otherwise they're healthy and they walk around and nobody knows. They don't have to explain what is this in your arm? What are these bumps? What's going on? Why does this vessel stick out? He lives a normal life and nobody knows. These are the people that are driving this movement. It's not me or you or the dialysis nurses and technicians. Yeah, we're a big part of it, but the ones that are driving it are the patients. I, I now have patients that are coming to me only because they've seen another patient in that clinic and they say, that's what I want. Can I get it too? This is where the success of endo-AVF is going to come from. 
it's the patients. It's not the operators or the providers. It's the patients. Yeah. And I think there's also something to be said for that. Like dialysis patients can sometimes be that they spend time with each other. It's a community within a community and they talk and they discuss different doctors, techniques and things like this. And and you're right. There can very much be like a grassroots movement um, amongst like dialysis units in terms of like them marketing like different things for each other. So that's really neat. And it makes you feel like when the patients are driving the direction that it feels like we're going in the right direction. Right. So, uh, Nagai, we have a lot of interventional listeners. We have vascular surgery listeners, interventional nephrology listeners. For people who are interested in getting in this procedure and they're just starting to dip their toes in the water, are there any resources that you would recommend or things that would maybe make this process uh, seem less daunting or easier to approach? It's going to say, it's going to sound weird, but YouTube is actually a great reference because if you Google this, there's actually live cases of think of both devices where you, where somebody has recorded and put up there in terms of, okay, watching what a live case looks like. I think every society has videos as well, whether it be the IR, the vascular surgery or the interventional nephrology society has videos and libraries as well for you to go research and review. There have been several now, the, the pivotal articles were great, but I think there's a couple of articles now that are really showing up in the journals in terms of long-term or longer-term, short-term, long-term, two, three-year outcomes with these patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is very encouraging. And then it's just a matter of re- reaching out to the reps and and they can get you educated. I think everybody has something that is a BD product. And so it's just starting with the BD rep and then finding the avenue rep for your area to contact. And if you're unsure, I mean, they can contact me and I can get them hooked up with either one of the representatives from either device at least in a contact name or to say, hey, go find this doctor and interested. So anything that I can do to help, I, I'd be glad to do. I, I think this is a great thing for the patients in the long run. All right. That's awesome. We'll make sure that we have a link to uh, your email for anyone who wants to get in touch. So that about wraps things up to our audience. Thank you for listening. We covered uh, an important topic today, an exciting topic. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take a second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes and Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're getting a lot of value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. It helps us in so many different ways. We love the feedback. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time with the Back Table Podcast. Thanks. Thanks.